Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This netcast is part of a series from the Fall 2009 Faith and Globalization Seminar. For more on the initiative, visit faithandglobalization.yale.edu. David, last time we were talking about um, the sinful woman in Luke 7, and there were some other interesting things that happened in Luke uh, 8 and 9, and we uh, just don't have enough time to go over all of them. Uh, now we're getting into a, a section of the gospel where um, Luke begins to tell the story of Jesus and uh, his, his activity of discipling, I yeah. guess is the best way to describe yeah. it. Um, what's going on with all of these stories of Jesus? And there are more stories in Luke than there are in the other Gospels about these disciples. There what's, are. What's going I, on? Think, I think the fact that, that we're moving from Luke to Acts is a way of remembering that this is not just about Jesus' ministry. This is about Jesus' ministry and the founding of the church. If there's a Gospel where Jesus founds a community, as well as calling disciples, this is it. So what we begin to see uh, in the first part of chapter 10 and elsewhere in Luke's Gospel is Jesus empowering those who will be his followers and then in the book of Acts, we see how those empowered apostles actually begin to live out his mission to do some of the things he's done, cast out demons, work miracles, proclaim the gospel. Uh, he's concerned for continuities in a way that I think he's not so concerned about in, in Matthew and Mark for sure. <laughs> now, um, one of the people who features prominently at this point is Peter. Yes. Right? And uh, how does uh, Luke's portrait of Peter contrast with that uh, that we get, let's say, in Matthew? Well, my, my reading, and I'd love to hear your take on this because this may be a Baptist versus Catholic thing. Mm -hmm. uh, my reading on Peter in, in Luke's gospel is that he's, he is representative of the community rather than taking on particular authority of his own. That, that, that when he confesses who Jesus is, that then Jesus says to all the disciples what that confesses his own messiahship to all the disciples and that Peter's not singled out as being the rock on which the church is, built, church is built, but becomes a paradigmatic confessor of the faith, as he'll be a paradigmatic apostle in Acts. Hugely important, but important as an example of the larger reality rather than as a particular figure. What do you think? I think that's probably right. I mean, if you contrast Matthew and Luke, I think you see two different models of church that we see attested in our sources by the end of the first century. Uh, and by the beginning of the second century, one focused on individual leaders, yeah, yeah. Um, most prominent of which is Ignatius of Antioch, probably from the same place that's, that Matthew's that's the gospel Matthew I think that's right. um, came from, and the other a more presbyteral yeah, model, a yeah, more collective model, yeah. and I think Luke, especially with his portrait of the elders of Miletus and exactly. Acts, yes, has that, Acts, uh, yeah. that's right, has that yeah. uh, understanding of how the church yeah, works, and so there's a kind of... Um, uh, egalitarian, yeah. Peter's, flattening, Peter's if you will. part of the council of, right. the, of the apostles. And the not given apostles. quite as much uh, prominence. That's right. That's right. And it's interesting to watch those two different models develop in the, uh, the course of... Yeah, one uh, of the, the toughest church. things in teaching church polity to seminarians is that there is not a New Testament version of how church leadership works, but that in some ways the different polities of our different churches find predecessors in different biblical streams. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so right. that that fight about the New Testament church is kind of a lost cause. Indeed. But in any case, Luke is interested in the church and uh, Very much, all of these uh, yeah, disciple uh, things uh, point in that direction. Now, it's interesting that the first, one of the first things that um, Luke tells us after the call of the 70 disciples yeah. in, in um, Luke 10 is this famous story of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. 
uh, perhaps one of the uh, most uh, beloved and certainly best known of the parables of Jesus, absolutely. right up there with the prodigal son. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the parables are really an important part of Luke's version Hugely. of of, uh, of Jesus, and it probably would be worth our while to think a little bit about uh, what we take parables to be yeah. before we get yeah. into this one. Well, let me just say a word about my own history on this one. I was in seminary long ago in the 60s. Uh, we were still very much under the influence of a number of uh, scholars, especially C.H. Dodd and Joachim Jeremias, who insisted that each parable had one main point. And the purpose of exegesis was to figure out what that point was in Jesus' ministry. And then once you got that, the parable became a kind of illustration of that. I think, I think in some ways Luke is the toughest counterexample to that because it seems to me that the parables we love the best, like the Good Samaritan, uh, like the prodigal son, are multifaceted and multi-meaning, and that if Jesus just wanted to say, oh, love your neighbor, he could have just said, love your neighbor, but that as Luke tells it, he tells a story that, that causes us to think about who we are in relationship to the story, uh, how the story affects our world, and may not come up with a quick lesson, but comes up with a kind of reshaping of our vision of the faithful life. Mm -hmm. So parables are rather like diamonds with lots of facets. Parables are much more like diamonds with lots of facets, and the good ones are worth uh, selling everything to gather, I uh -huh. think. Yeah. Well, let's turn then to the parable of the Good Samaritan and say a little bit about it. It's, uh, it comes as a response to a, a critical dialogue between Jesus and um, a seeker, right? The, the seeker, who's a lawyer, interestingly, which I take it to mean not so much an attorney, but somebody who knows the Jewish law, who follows Torah, trying to find out what he needs to do to, eternal, to do eternal life, to find eternal life. Jesus asks him what he understands the law to be. He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, nice answer. And then uh, the lawyer, it says, seeking to justify himself, which is very interesting, because that Paul would say, doing just the wrong thing, trying to make yourself righteous. It may be simpler than that, just trying to figure out whether he's doing the right thing. Asks, who is my neighbor? And I, I want to point out a couple things to this and keep me from getting into the preachy mode, because I can feel it coming. Um, <laughs> let me point out a couple things on this, and then we'll have a real conversation about it. Uh, one is the way the thing twists around. In some ways, Jesus never answers that question. He doesn't, at the end of the story, it's not, uh, who is my neighbor? It's which one acted like a neighbor. So it's not, don't ask who your neighbor is, you just go be neighborly. Uh, and the answer is, which one acted like a neighbor, goes back to our earlier theme, the one who showed mercy. The, we are called to be neighborly. Um, the, the second theme, and then I want to pull in a third theme, which I was pointed out to me only yesterday. The, the second theme is that the neighbor is a Samaritan. Um, the one who acts neighborly is a Samaritan. And um, we have been so uh, used to this story that I think it's almost impossible to get the shock value. Is it, is it the, the Palestinian guerrilla who reaches down to the Israeli uh, soldier. It's this, when, when, this, when the man at the side of the road looks up and sees a Samaritan, that is the world turned upside down at that moment because all the usual good guys have now passed by and, and what you see is this shock. The, the other thing is, is something that was pointed out to me by Jonah Bartlett, who is one of your students uh, in New Testament, who said that, No relation. No relation to me. Uh, well, actually, close relation to me. Um, who said that he was, he was getting ready to preach on this text, and he said what strikes him in thinking about our current social situation, this goes back to our confusions, our concerns about the Magnificat, is how do we now understand who we are in relationship to this strong social issue of being beaten, being left by the side of the road? And he says for him part of the problem is for Christians to think about what we're supposed to do while the beating is taking place. Taking place. How do you stop the beatings? One thing to ask, how do you bind up the wounds of society? How do you make the kind of just society where fewer people get wounded? Mm 
And I don't know that that's Luke's question, but I think it's a really good question for us it, in the light it of It illustrates story. a very interesting point about parables, that if you insert yourself into the yeah. story at different points, you get a different You get a different story. And different I think we'll spin. see that again when we talk about the product of Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but I want to reinforce a couple of things that you've said. One, um, that the parable in some ways is a response to a question, yeah. and the response consists of not a not an answer, no. but a statement that you're asking the wrong it's question. Exactly. Shift the question entirely. And yeah. I think a lot of parables do that. I, do I think they, they really um, sort of challenge basic presuppositions on the part of uh, listeners, either in the story world of Luke or yeah. we uh, domestic. We tend to domesticate them by getting easy answers out of them, and they're more complicated and, and, and push us. Right. And uh, on the contrast between the single point and the multiple yeah. points, uh, you know, people like uh, Dodd and Jeremias would say, this is an example story. Right. Just telling you to go and right. do likewise. Right, right. It is that. It, it is that. It tells you to go and be merciful. Yeah. But it also challenges your uh, idea of uh, of hooking up the term good with a category. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like do. a contradiction in terms. Good, good Democrat. Good Samaritan is, good is Republican. loving terrorists. Good whatever. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah, right. Exactly. That kind of thing. Yeah. Merciful yeah. Al-Qaeda member. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't know how to do that. Not, not a natural connection. Exactly. Uh, let me ask one other thing. I, I had a conversation not too long ago with uh, someone who was concerned concerned about the way in which um, uh, Jewish leaders were being portrayed yeah. in this parable. Yeah. Is, is there an element of polemic or potential anti-Semitism in the way the priest and the Levite are being portrayed? I think the whole New Testament, with very rare exceptions, can be easily construed to feed anti-Judaism. And uh, in, in my role, both as a teacher and a preacher, I try to find ways to not to do that. I, think in, I actually think in this case, whether in Jesus' words or Luke's words, they're not there as representative Jews. They're there as the typical good guys. Mm -hmm. That is, good Pharisee, good scribe, uh, good Levite, those all make sense in that world. Good Samaritan turns it, up, turns it around. So we can say good Republican, good Democrat, but good Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. that throws mm -hmm. us out. So I don't think he's doing an anti-Jewish thing. Yeah, yet. I I would agree. I tend to <clears throat> hear that part of the story, again, coming out of a Catholic tradition, and thinking of all the anti-clerical jokes. Yeah, yeah, much closer to that. With. Yes. Much closer to that. And we can do that in every denomination. Right. Um, yes, <laughs> you can do it, and I can be the butt of it in every denomination. It works out very well, indeed. Um, so I think this is a, a really interesting example of um, the parables of Jesus. It's a great, we're going to be a great encountering some uh, yeah. more of them very soon. Yeah, mm -hmm. a great example. The other, the one other thing I, w I wanted to, to hold up, because it's, it's, again, indicative of what Luke does, and maybe what Jesus does, but certainly what Luke does is the very... So we come out of this story thinking, all right, what's Christian faithfulness? Christian faithfulness is showing mercy. Getting out, doing something, in my son's read, stop the beating before it happens. Then we have this next story, very next story, Martha and Mary. Martha looks like the paradigmatic Samaritan type, meeting the needs of the hungry, in the kitchen, taking care. Martha is the closer to the Levite or the Pharisee, ignoring everybody's human needs to do prayerful things. And suddenly Jesus says, ha, Mary's chosen the better part. Mm -hmm. So just when I think I've got what the gospel's about, Luke says, well, sometimes this and sometimes that. And I, that, I, I think the tricky thing, one of the many tricky things about the gospel is we want to make it principles that always apply. And the problem is it's a call that always has to be obeyed. And sometimes what was just the right thing to do in case A is not the right thing to do in case B, which makes the faithful life very tricky. Luke has two hands, doesn't Luke he? Luke has on two hands, and he's always doing it. Uh, he's I, always doing I, I want to highlight one other thing in that uh, Mary and Martha um, episode that you just mentioned, and that is uh, the call to prayer. 
yeah. which I think is another important theme Huge. in Luke, and we haven't talked Huge. too much about it. Do you want to say just a little bit about well, that? Well, very important here, very important in that we see Jesus praying in Luke more than anywhere else. Very important in that chapter 11, we have a great deal of conversation about the way in which prayer operates. We have his version of the Lord's Prayer, and we have the sense, I think, that it's the prayerful life that keeps us in touch with this spirit, which is what drives faithfulness. And so um, faithfulness apart from prayer runs dry very fast, I think, for Luke. That's right. It's interesting that uh, just before Jesus gives us the Sermon on the, uh, the Plain in Luke, he's, he's off to pray. praying. He's gone off to pray. Uh, very different from the, yeah. uh, the portrait yeah. that we have yeah. in, uh, in Matthew. And right after the Mary and Martha episode, we have, as you say, the Lord's I think, in, you know, I'd love to get your, your read on this, but I think in Luke's Gospel more than any other, Jesus is the exemplary Christian. Mm -hmm. In addition to everything else he does, he shows us how to lead the faithful life, and prayer is a big part of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting that the wording of the Lord's Prayer in Luke uh, emphasizes forgiveness of sins. Yeah, it does. Yes, right. uh, Luke 11. Which is 4. the great Lucan theme. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yale University, in collaboration with the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, has created the Faith and Globalization Initiative, which examines the profound impact of religious faith in a world where political, economic, and social spheres are increasingly interconnected. These crucial issues of faith and globalization can hopefully, through open discussion and reflection, lead to the kind of reconciliation and peaceful coexistence that life in the 21st century demands.